Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It's Thursday, the 30th of January, 2020. Um, I thought I'd lead off this morning with some good news and then connect it with the ultimate good news of the gospel. So according to the CDC, in a report being released today, for the first time in four years, U.S. life expectancy has actually risen. So this is good news. This is just like, this is good news. Uh, On average, uh, an infant born in 2018 is expected to live about 78 years and eight months That is actually one month longer than life expectancy for those born in 2017. Now, life expectancy is um, sort of a rolling average. And so you can imagine that I am going to seek to reconnect the eternal with the everyday here and, um, and acknowledge that although the Centers for Disease Control, based on an continuing reducing rate of death due to cancer, which we celebrate, absolutely. And um, a statistically declining rate of suicide, also we celebrate. Um, So based on these things, the CDC is saying, hey, you know, people born in 2018 statistically going to live one year longer than those born in 2017. Uh, Women still live longer than men. For men, life expectancy, 76 76 years, two months. For women, 81 years, one month, always curious. See, in these kinds of things, we make a distinction between uh, biologically male and biologically female people. I just throw that out there as one um, interesting talking point. But here is the opportunity that I see for you and for me. What is your real life expectancy? What do you expect from this life, in this life? How long do you expect to live? Is that even, does it even matter Um, Are you making the most of the day that God has given you today? Because this is the day you can count on. Um, And what's your life expectancy? What is your life expectancy? Let me just go ahead and tell you. I'm going to live forever. My life expectancy is forever and ever. Amen. Friends, it was just last Sunday that Kobe Bryant and eight others, including his 13-year-old daughter, died in a helicopter crash. No one expected that to happen. That does not work into the life expectancy charts. And yet, it did. And so you and I may imagine that we can count our days by an insurance table or by what actuaries tell us or by CDC predictions. 76, 78, 81 years. That is actually promised to no one. What is promised you is today. So today... What is your life expectancy? There's a couple of ways to think about this. My life expectancy today is that I expect today that I will live in ways that are worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ, that I will live life, L-I-F-E, living in faith every day. That's my life expectancy, that, that this is a life that I would live unto God who has redeemed me. 
What's your life expectancy today? And then what's your life expectancy? I mean, I, I'm a person who expects always the unexpected and anticipates miracles, knowing that with God, all things are possible. And so today, when you hear someone refer to the life expectancy numbers, I want you to smile and I want you to tell them that you expect to live forever and then tell them how. Up next, I got Ben Johnson on the line. He and I are going to talk about Michael Bloomberg. We're going to talk about the intersection of faith and those in politics. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. Welcoming back Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find what he is writing about at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. So um, let me start with just an, uh, an open question. What is your life expectancy? Eternal life with our Lord Jesus. Amen. Right? Amen. Amen. That's, that's, the, that's the only life that I'm living for in this life. And if eternal Amen. life doesn't begin in this world, then we won't experience it in the next. Amen, brother. I feel like we could wrap it right there, but we have some time to fill, and there would be dead air on the radio, and that would be sad for everyone. So now we're going to pivot to a headline of the day that you wrote, and I'm going to let you read because I don't want to mess it up. It starts with the word Bloomberg, and then what comes after that? So the, uh, the it's about Michael Bloomberg's most recent tweet, or one of his recent tweets. Will Michael Bloomberg enact Tikkun Olam? Now my listeners know why I did not try to say it. What is Tikkun Olam? Tikkun Olam is uh, part of the religious background of Judaism. Of course, Michael Bloomberg uh, running to be the first Jewish president. And Tikkun Olam in uh, Judaism has uh, has taken on the meaning of repairing the world. Uh, he he believes that his his campaign uh, gives him the responsibility uh, to repair the world, and he's going to do that through being elected president. Uh, Judaism doesn't exactly define tikkun olam that way. The first place that you find this term, uh, which uh, which has been traditionally sp- uh, spoken of as repairing the world, is in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral tradition on the Torah. Uh, and there it just has to do with conditions of divorce and about slavery and the manumission of slaves. That's all that it has to do with. Uh, as Judaism goes on, Judaism goes into different compartments, sort of as, as um, uh, Christianity goes into different denominations and there become different interpretations. But uh, in, as, secular, as uh, secularism crept into the American Jewish community in the 1950s, the term tikkun olam came to mean social action work or it came to mean political advocacy about the time Michael Bloomberg was growing up. Uh, that's not traditionally what it means. What tikkun olam uh, has traditionally meant, according to the Grand Rabbi of Boston and, and many others, regardless of whether they're conservative, orthodox, or reform Jews, is that tikkun olam means repairing the world by repairing your own soul, which means keeping what they believe are the 613 Old Testament laws or mitzvah in the Torah, in the in what we would call the Old Testament. And uh, that means keeping those commandments, being pure, having a relationship with God. Those are, those are really how you repair the world, by repairing one soul at a time and redeem people, redeem the world. That's the traditional idea. That's not what Michael Bloomberg is campaigning to do. 
Okay, so when you and I think about repairing the world, um, we understand a redemptive narrative that uh, that centers on the cross of Jesus Christ. If an individual like Michael Bloomberg were going to set about to repair the world from a Jewish worldview, um, obviously that's not going to center on the redemptive narrative of Jesus Christ. So uh, around what would an individual who views themselves this way imagine that they might repair the world? Uh, if uh, Michael Bloomberg were hewing to a traditional definition of Judaism, uh, outside of uh, even within Kabbalistic Judaism, he would he would focus on keeping the 613 Old Testament commandments or, or okay, the commandments of the, the Torah. That, that is not going to work very well um, for <laughs> people. I mean, I don't know if you've like met the average American, but you know, or, or the average person, but like we're not even we're not even good at keeping the Big Ten. Right. And so, I mean, I'm just saying that like, it's just this On kind a of a wild basis. imagination that we're going to live, that we're going to ever. I mean, the Jews couldn't do it even when they were living under the full theocracy of God. And so this, it seems like a wild imagining that we would find a way to live together by uh, by a distinct set of, of, of actual like rules that everyone would cooperate in following. I, I don't, I mean, that just, it seems kind of, that... That seems more dreamy than people coming to Jesus. Like, it's, it's easier for me to imagine everybody coming to Jesus and our, and our experiencing a national and global revival than to imagine that people are going to submit themselves to an external set of rules and all live by those together. Well, revival is what we pray for. You know, when it comes to this uh, topic, I guess I've got bad news and I've got worse news. Uh, the bad news is that uh, you know the it, it, you're correct. 613 laws are impossible for for most of us to keep. Even the Ten Commandments on a daily basis for most of us are, are asking a little bit too much. Uh, however, in in traditional Judaism, only Jewish people have to keep all of the laws. So uh, that's that's one part. The worst news is Michael Bloomberg's not really even running on that. What he's running on is his idea of uh, a liberal secularist uh, point of view, very left wing politics. When it comes to Michael Bloomberg, his politics are far to the left, uh, most of them in contradistinction to, say, Orthodox Judaism of uh, my friend uh, Daniel Lappin or others uh, who, uh, any, who would say this doesn't really bear much resemblance to Judaism. For example, in his, his private philanthropy, uh, Bloomberg Family uh, Foundations, his Bloomberg family philanthropy gave $50 million to Planned Parenthood International to try and overturn pro-life laws in four different countries. Uh, he's given money to Marie Stopes International, and when he did it, he gave it sort of with a wink, uh, noting that Marie Stopes International performs illegal abortions in Africa, and he gave it to their Tanzania uh, affiliate. So uh, he he was uh, he signed the very first, uh, I, I believe it was the very first in the country, uh, transgender uh, civil rights law in 2002. He's a believer that battered women's shelters should uh, be forced by law to admit biological men into uh, into their shelters. Uh, he is a believer in fully funded federal abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy. Uh, he, when it comes to abortion, he is fanatically uh, pro-choice. Uh, and when it comes to religious liberty, when he was mayor of New York for three terms, uh, he was initially a Democrat, but he realized he couldn't win the Democratic primary, so he became a Republican. Then he became a, an independent. Now he's a Democrat again. Uh, Bloomberg, which shows a certain amount of opportunism, uh, Bloomberg, uh, when he was mayor of New York for three terms, forbade churches and other religious institutions from meeting inside New York City public schools on the weekends when no one was there. Ultimately, he lost that case. But uh, he's someone who's hostile to uh, organizations, including uh, uh, Jewish organizations, that would want to meet in the public square. 
All right, Ben, um, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, I, I feel like one of the things that you are seeking to lift up here and that we should point out is that Tika, Tikam Olam means something, and it cannot just mean anything that anybody today wants to say that it means. And that's happening with other words as well. So maybe we'll grab a couple of those when we come back. I'm talking with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can read what we're talking about today at actonacton.org. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can read what Ben is writing at actonacton.org. Ben, this is really just a quick observation about um, helping listeners recognize that there are people who intentionally misappropriate um, words that have a meaning in the Bible or or elsewhere, and they misappropriate them and they use them in ways that um, make them mean something that they never meant. I think I'm thinking here of 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 images like the rainbow, um, or of words like love, um, and this declaration that God is love, and we've made we know we've made a God of love uh, in in a reversal of that. So that was really just I just wanted to make an observation of, about that because I feel like this. Um, uh, Bloomberg sort of making this reference to his Jewish heritage, but then misappropriating a term from Judaism. Like, that's the thing here that I would really want to call out. And you, you see the exact same thing uh, with, uh, for example, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg citing their Christian faith to say we have to have uh, a $15 an hour minimum wage or something. It's something that's not in Scripture, but uh, they've they've just appropriated for the rhetoric to give a certain emotive glow to uh, an otherwise conventional political platform. Uh, I think that that's a misuse of uh, of the gospel. Jesus didn't primarily come to do anything political. He came to save our souls. That's what we celebrate. Amen. All right, you have got a piece um, that's going up later today at Acton, um, and it's going to be on the Espinoza case. Tell us, uh, am I right? Did I make that up? Uh, I just I just went up. up last night, so, oh, so it has, has just gone up, yes. I'm speaking truth. It's good. Um, okay, so tell us tell us about that. Remind us what the Espinoza case is. Yeah, so in Montana, they, they established a program that if you give up to $150 to a scholarship program that uh, students can use for um, for private schools, whether secular or religious, you get $150 tax deduction from the state dollar for dollar on your taxes. A group of people sued because some of this money could go to religious schools, and they said that this indirectly means that the state is funding religious schools. Now, first of all, this is a tax deduction. The, the state isn't giving anything to anyone. A tax deduction means that the state lets you keep a little bit of the money that you've earned. Uh, and in this case, we do it for uh, charitable write-offs, mortgage write-offs, college tuition, health care if you're uh, self-employed. So uh, the idea that uh, you could have this for a, a secular or private school apparently was too much for certain uh, forces in Montana. They sued. The Montana Supreme Court destroyed the entire program, eliminated the program. The case is currently in front of the Supreme Court because of Kendra Espinosa, whose two children attend a Christian school in Kalispell, Montana. And uh, what I go into in the piece is the fact that you've got what's known as the Blaine Amendment, which was introduced by uh, a Maine uh, figure from Maine, Speaker of the House, and uh, worked in, uh, ran for president unsuccessfully in 1884, James G. Blaine. Uh, at, during that time, we were having a massive influx of Catholic immigrants, and there were people who believed that Catholicism and American liberty were completely diametrically opposed. Catholics could never be good Americans. Uh, there are certain Catholic integralists who believe that today. But he, uh, 
they decided that they wanted to amend the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, to assure that no federal funding could ever go to what they called a sectarian or a parochial school uh, controlled by a, quote, religious sect. And they, they meant Catholic schools because, as we all know, public schools taught Protestant Christianity. They taught the Bible. They taught hymns. They had prayer in school. And uh, they, it fell four votes short in the Senate. However, 37 states, including Montana, adopted one. Now, there, this shows how discrimination boomerangs and always backfires on itself because you had secularists take over the place of Protestants in American elite life, and the Supreme Court stripped out prayer, Bible reading, uh, funding of religious schools, posting the Ten Commandments and state-sponsored prayers at public school graduations in a series of cases over 30 years, being with uh, Engel v. Vital in 1962, ending at Lee v. Wiseman 30 years later in 92. And so now... Christians are forming their own schools outside the public schools, and now the Blaine Amendment, which they put in order to prevent funding of Catholic schools, is preventing the funding of Protestant schools as well, uh, or traditional Christian schools of any description. And so this is this is at the heart of uh, the Supreme Court case. It's about letting poor people have access to high-quality education, and it's about overturning these relics of, uh, of our past, which are based on discrimination. Most importantly, it's about upholding parental rights. Which, uh, which say that the rights of parents to guide their children's education are pre-political. The, the children have primary responsibility for the parents and the parents for the children. The state has a secondary role in that. But the parents primarily are to ensure that their children receive a good education according to their faith, and they can do that with school choice. This program doesn't fund anything directly or indirectly, and there are a whole list of uh, Supreme Court precedents, which I list in in the piece at Acton.org that your, your readers can get into if they want the legal background. Uh, also, we talk about uh, Abraham Kuyper and some, some great Protestant leaders who talk about parental rights. But when it's all said and done, this is about respecting parental rights and giving poor students access to outstanding education. The state shouldn't stand in the way of that. So I think that uh, Mike Pence and Betsy DeVos um, are, uh, are interested in this conversation. It looks like I'm clicking to be sure that I have the date right. Um, it looks like they are um, engaged in a pro-school choice rally in Wisconsin. So I'm just saying, like, you know, we do have uh, we do have people who think that people should have a choice in not only the way we educate our kids, but as Christians, how we engage um, in the entire not only public school process, but private school process as well. So, um, Ben, thank you so much, as always, for being with us today, helping us track everything that is related to our rights and the freedoms, um, the freedoms we enjoy here in the United States of America. We do not take them for granted. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So you may or may not know this is National School Choice Week. Um, and so yesterday, the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, along with uh, Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education, were in Wisconsin. Uh, they were promoting private school vouchers and other alternatives to traditional public schools. And they were doing so at Wisconsin's School Choice Student Showcase, which was held uh, Tuesday at the Capitol in Madison. Um, you may not know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's first school voucher program. It actually started in Milwaukee in 1990, um, and it's not actually expressly religious. And so if you were to look at the students who participated um, in this school choice uh, showcase, you're going to see students from Milwaukee's Dance Academy of Mexico. 
Um, and so uh, we're talking here about people who want to have um, have an education that is centered around uh, not only an activity, in this case, dance and becoming really fine dancers, uh, but we're talking about people who want to do so in a way that is expressly cultural, in this case, Mexican. And so sometimes when we're having these school choice conversations, we as Christians um, hone so quickly in on the conversation about religious liberty that we fail to recognize that um, there are lots and lots of choices being exercised by parents in terms of the schools that their children attend. And so if you um, if you know a student who wants to leave a poorly performing school district in order to attend a school um, that is a is higher performing or is a magnet school for technology or is a magnet school for language or is a magnet school for the arts. That's the kind of school choice we're also talking about. Um, and so this is National School Choice Week. So I thought it'd be fun to have a representative of the organization that's behind all of this. And so Shelby Doyle will be here next to talk with us about school choice. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Where in the word are you today? Um, and and why do I ask that question? So I ask that question because you and I, as, as ambassadors of the king and the kingdom, are not equipped to enter the world that God so loves until we have been in the word of God. And so where in the word are you today? Um, I have been in Psalm 119 this entire month. Uh, that has been the um, that has been the conversation we have been having at at, at church. And, um, and so there's been preaching on that. There has been um, a prayer emphasis around Psalm 119. And last night, uh, our community group spent some time in a portion of Psalm 119. And really, we're just talking about how the Word of God teaches us, how it instructs us, um, not just in terms of our minds, but how it brings our life by the power of the Holy Spirit into conformity with who God is and His will. So if you want to know God, he has, um, he has revealed himself, not only in creation, but very specifically um, in the person of Jesus Christ and in the Word of God, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And so where in the Word are you today? If you need access to a Bible, we give them away all the time. And so uh, this month we are giving away copies of the Charles Spurgeon Study Bible. And you can log on to MyFaithRadio.com and enter to win a copy. We give them away every single week. Um, this is the final week to get a copy of the Charles Spurgeon Study Bible. Actually, I think we're giving those away until February 3rd. So it's almost the final week. Oh, no, this is the final week because it's mo- Monday is the 3rd. Anyway, all right. So just if you want this one, like now's the time. MyFaithRadio.com. Um, you are looking for uh, the enter to win in terms of a copy of the Charles Spurgeon Study Bible. But you can get into the Word of God. Like don't use as an excuse that you don't have a, a like a physical page-turner Bible you can get into the Word of God online. You can get into the Word of God on your phone. Faith Comes by Hearing um, sends out access to free audio Bibles. Like, don't don't make up an excuse today to not be in the Word of God. It is really accessible in our generation. And so let me invite you into the Word of God before you are in the world that God so loves. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. When you have an older teen spinning out of control and not responding to your discipline, it may mean you have a very important choice before you. You can let that teen stay at home and wreak havoc in your household, or you can ask him to leave. 
Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It's a difficult decision, but parents shouldn't allow one out-of-control teen to destroy the good things going for the rest of the family. Sometimes the best option for an older teen is to release them, let them go. And as parents, we should pray for their growth and development in the world, in the ways they weren't grasping at home. Scary, yes, but sometimes a child won't listen to our advice until he gets to the end of himself. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. I, uh, I grew up going to public school, but I did go to um, a school of my parents' choice. We would also call that, uh, when I was growing up, a private school. Um, when I was in seventh grade, and that was a strategic decision that my parents made, and I am grateful for it. We're going to talk about school choice and the choice that parents have in America to send their kids to the school of their choice. We're doing so with Shelby Doyle during this National School Choice Week. Shelby, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me. So let's just start with um, the, the the question of whether or not people should be compelled to send their kids to the government school that is in their uh, in their geography, or whether or not parents should have the choice um, to send their child to the school of their choice. Absolutely, I mean that is the fundamental question: is whether or not parents have a right to have an option about where their kid goes. And it's not about saying that necessarily your zoned public school is bad or wouldn't work for your child, but no school can be the perfect fit for every child. Every child's a unique uh, individual. And so we think it's really important that parents have that option and have the power to choose the school that best works for them, that reflects what they want for their child's education. Okay, so Shelby, let's talk about uh, the range that we're discussing here. Are we talking about homeschool? Are we talking about school that might be online? Are we talking about um, private parochial schools? Are we talking about schools where, you know, there might be an emphasis on math or technology or dance or art? Are we talking about all of those when we're talking about school choice? We absolutely are, and you just named more of them than a lot of people necessarily know about already. Um, We're talking about everything. So neighborhood public school, public charter school, public magnet school, private school, online school, homeschooling, all of the above are things that we celebrate during National School Choice Week. And a lot of those are new options or expanded options since a generation ago for parents. And so that is one of the biggest reasons why School Choice Week has to happen is because there's so much out there. I mean, online schooling, of course, wasn't an option a couple of decades ago. And so parents don't always know that those new options exist near them or that they could have access to them. And so we try to get parents involved and aware of everything that's out there for them so they can make an informed decision, look at everything available, and then pick the right fit. Okay, and we are in the midst of National School Choice Week. So I feel like this is um, this is really about raising awareness across the country about what's available uh, in your particular state. We were just making reference um, earlier to, I don't know, maybe a rally is the right word, that took place in Wisconsin where the Vice President of the United States and 
uh, and our Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, were both present to uh, to participate in a National School Choice Week event. Um, there, but there's stuff going on all over the country. And I want to direct people to the schoolchoiceweek.com website because if they go on there, if they don't know what's available in their own state, they can find out. Absolutely, yes. So that's one of the big things that makes the week a little unique is especially when it comes to education policy, everything is pretty much still set at the state level. So if you are, especially if you move between states, you could be looking at a whole different landscape of what is available to your family. So what we have done is created parent guides to school choice. And so at schoolchoiceweek.com, you can choose your state. You can download a state guide that gives you all the differences and similarities between the different types of schools, lets you know what your state has made available for each type of school, and then has some next steps, some links that you can follow so that you can get more information about whichever you're interested in. Okay, so I did that. It took me literally that long while you were answering the question to um, – to... <laughs> type in my email address and my state, and then in my inbox, I received my school choice in Tennessee list. Um, And so here I've got traditional public schools, charter public schools, uh, magnet public schools. All of those are free. Online public schools, private schools, which which can be free, and home education. And I have a green light on each and every one of those. So I'm, I'm just guessing, without reading all of the text, I'm guessing that that means that all of those are options for parents um, in terms of educating their children in my particular state. Is, am I reading that right? You absolutely are, and I'm so glad that was so quick for you. But yes, so we've tried to break it down in a super easy-to-follow way because we found that a lot of the other information out there, it's interesting, it's highly technical, and there's lots of terms that you kind of have to spend a lot of time doing research in order to understand the information that's available for certain types of schools when it comes to education policy groups. And so what we wanted to do is break down specifically just what parents are looking for. Is this available near me? What does funding for this type of education look like? And is it open to all students? Those are kind of the top three things we try to make sure it's available as a quick skimmable piece of information about every type of school. And then from there, of course, we can get into the nitty gritty, but try to start at the level of practicality. All right, Shelby Doyle and I are going to get into the nitty-gritty here in just a moment. We have to take a quick break. Um, while we're on this break, you could check out schoolchoiceweek.com. If you just enter your email address and um, and your state, then you can have this this nifty, quick, I mean, super quick, I mean, like at a glance, look at what school choice looks like in your own state. And then we can have a conversation about how you influence that if you have more red lights than green lights um, in, in, in the answer to the question about your particular state. So more next with Shelby Doyle from National School Choice Week. We'll be right back. Be strong in the Lord never give up hope. You're going to do great things. I already know. God's got his Talking with Shelby Doyle from the National School Choice Week. And we are talking uh, not only about this week where we are celebrating school choice across the United States of America, but we're also talking about uh, some of the more nitty gritty, like how do we arrive at the place where um, you no longer have to send your child in a compulsory way to a uh, to a government school. But you do, in fact, have the right, have the choice um, to educate your child in the way that you see fit. Now, obviously, in compliance with what we as a culture have decided ought to be included in that. 
Um, and so let, let's talk about that, Shelby. Um, it, it occurs to me that prior to 1990, when there were no school vouchers, um, somebody thought that up and then somebody um, moved ahead uh, with making that happen, like did the hard, hard work to actually bring about that pretty massive change in the way that um, this conversation is approached. Now, obviously, it continues to be under attack. We recognize that there is a case pending even now before the U.S. Supreme Court related to this. Um, and so uh, when we when we have these conversations about what's currently available in my state, what might be available in another state that I might wish were available in my state, how does it how does it happen? How does the landscape change in a particular place related to this? Yeah, you know, you bring up something really interesting, and it's the history of how vouchers came into existence. So I think it's instructive. Just quickly, I'll touch on how that happened. So economists like uh, Milton Friedman, who was uh, one of the pioneering minds behind thinking about scholarships for private schools, have been talking about it for far longer than they've been in existence. But what started in terms of actually having vouchers in parents' hands was parent activism and community-led activism um, in Milwaukee in 1990. A man named Dr. Howard Fuller and a lot of other folks um, got together to talk about their dissatisfaction with the number of options that especially low-income parents had. And so they started a voucher program in their particular city. And that sort of started this movement where other people looked around and said, well, we want that too for our kids. And so when it comes to thinking about places where choices still don't exist, I think one of the most exciting things during National School Choice Week is seeing parents and students and teachers come together and show that there really is a passion and an interest behind expanding choices where they aren't already. And we've seen so much of that over the last couple of decades. Even last year, West Virginia, for the first time in its history, passed a law that allowed for some charter schools to open there. So every year we get a little closer to having these options for every family. During School Choice Week, we don't do any direct lobbying or direct advocacy, but we are always excited to see when parents have more school choice. Um, So take us on a little bit of a tour of what has been happening during School Choice Week. Yeah, so this is the 10th celebration of School Choice Week, and we're so excited that there are more events and activities happening than ever. So 51,300 schools, organizations, and individuals have decided to participate in the week this year, and they are hosting their own celebrations. So it goes everywhere from open houses at local schools or parent appreciation nights there to a school fair or a rally that's hosted by an organization or a group of schools. And then there's lots of individual participants too. Lots of homeschooling families will hold information nights where they share how they do what they do with the local community and help inform other interested parents on how they might do it too, or just sharing their story online so that other people can learn how their families navigated school choice and found the right fit so they can be inspired to do that too. So it's taking place across the country right now. We're in the middle of it as we speak. And it's just been amazing this year that we've had an all-time record participation. Okay, it's really fun to uh, to watch the videos. If folks are interested in doing that, um, I'm, I'm watching them on YouTube as we're talking about this. There are um, National School Choice Week rallies going on in places all over the country. 
you know, it occurs to me that, um, you know, when we started this conversation, I was able to rattle off a list, a range of options. Um, Shelby, that's because within my own family system, like I'm, I'm literally one family member removed from I've got uh, I've got homeschooling. I got kids who are homeschooling their kids. We have a, a child in uh, in in a private school. Um, my niece and nephew attend uh, a, a Catholic high school um, and and then we've got kids in public school. And so we kind of do it all in our family. Um, and I am very familiar with the online option because I live in a fairly rural place. And so I have a number of neighbors on my street whose kids um, are thriving using an online form of education because, frankly, they went beyond where their parents could homeschool them. Um, and so uh, they're they're accessing now online education. I also have uh, a cousin who lives in um, Togo, West Africa, and her kids uh, attend an online international school that's accredited uh, here in the United States, which then enables them to come back to the U.S. to go to college. And one of them has started at Cedarville um, this year. So I'm really familiar with a number of these options, even though I personally, you know, went went K through 12 to public school, except for one year in in private school in seventh grade. And that was because, you know, my parents really thought about what that seventh grade experience was going to be like for me. And at that stage of life, just felt like there was a better option. And I'm glad that they had the freedom to choose that. I'm glad, too. I think it's becoming more and more of kind of a no-brainer to people that, of course, having choices is valuable. I mean, we have them in every other part of our life. We can buy the brand of milk that makes us most happy. Shouldn't we be able to choose where our student spends a majority of their day every day? I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious in a lot of ways, but sometimes the situation on the ground level is catching up to that. And I have a similar story to you where it, of course, makes sense to me. I was also actually homeschooled K through 12. My older sister finished high school at a performing public magnet school. My younger sister did a private school option for a few years and also went to school fully online. So by the time I graduated high school, it seemed very clear to me that options were important in education. So I think having more and more people grow up and become parents who have seen that firsthand, and I think we're going to continue to see people think about this issue differently as it becomes more and more clear how valuable having these choices has been. Thanks. Um, thanks, Shelby, so much for doing what you're doing. Uh, thank you for raising our awareness about School Choice Week. We want to invite everybody to visit schoolchoiceweek.com and get involved in your own community. Uh, Shelby, thanks so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me and happy School Choice Week. Happy School Choice Week. We'll be right back. Okay, uh, so part of being able to exercise school choice is that we would have students who are actually ready. And so if you're looking for a way to engage on this particular subject and you've got a little free time and you know how to read, um, actually just going to your local public school and saying, I would like to read to students, um, read with them, sit in the library uh, as their class comes through and help them uh, arrive at a place where they are reading on grade level. You could you could actually potentially change the future of the country by helping one child rise to the level where they could read at grade level. You and I know that faith comes by hearing. We also know that it is a precious, precious gift to be able to read the word of God for ourselves. 
And so um, this isn't just about reading the Bible, but that is a part of this conversation. Um, It's also a conversation about doing what is right and good and righteous in our own communities and passing on to others the good gifts that we have received in terms of our ability to read and our education. So part of educational choice is access. Do people have the money to attend the school of their choice? Um, The voucher program is a part of that conversation. Do they have transportation? Maybe that is a ministry that you, your neighbors, or your church wants to begin engaging in. And then do they have the aptitude to go to the kind of school that they want to attend? All those kinds of conversations are ministry opportunities for you and me as we consider the school choice conversation, even if we're no longer at the place where we have like school age kids. So um, what are you doing in your own community to advance the educational opportunities and choices available to students? And how are you helping them get there? It's a good question for us uh, today. All right, we have an entirely new hour coming up next. In the next hour of Mornings with Carmen, I'm going to be talking with Peter Kapsner. We are going to be revisiting the death of Kobe Bryant. Um, Even though the news cycle may have passed on from this, the reality is this is a topic that we need to till, that we need to turn over. We're also going to talk about some faith storylines related to the Super Bowl. And then in the bottom of the next hour, I've got Mark Lagon from The Global Fight, and we're going to talk about the coronavirus in China and its impact on the rest of the world. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. It's always a pleasure to be with you, and we would love for you to pass the show on to someone else by grabbing the podcast later today at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.